May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I think it was Mark Twain who said, When I was 17, I was amazed that I thought that my father was the most ignorant man in the entire world. And by the time I was 21, I was equally amazed by how much he had learned. (laughs) It's funny how time has a way of kind of changing the way we see things, isn't it? I know a father who tells his children as they enter the cusp of puberty, "Um, we're going to miss you for a while. Your brain is not going to be able to function nearly as well for a few years. But don't worry, when you get through it, we'll be here at the other side. (laughs) Brings me to my third axiom. Youth seems to be wasted on the young, isn't it? You know, we enter the world with this gray matter up here that seems to be functioning really well. You know, you see little children who seem so bright and intelligent, and they, they have all the, the um, attributes of a, of a well-working brain. But just because it works well and functions well doesn't mean that it has everything it needs, does it? I mean, it's about inputting data. Wisdom is about the outcome of, of, of having put this data in these brains for years and years. And so we hope that our, our children and grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, the neighbors down the street, that they get to the best places for data input. You know, we call these places schools, right? And, and, we, and they have the best possible data input professionals. We call these teachers. We want them to be in these places. We even strive to make sure that they, they have, you know, all the things necessary like safety and food and shelter and all those sorts of things because we want them, we want them to, to get all the data that they need so that they might someday become wise. We even spend a great deal of, our, of, of, of money and, and all of our resources put towards this. Uh, we, we, um, we, we strive to have the best possible education if we can. Think about the essence of the good life in the Western world. I mean, how would most people define the good life? They would say things like, well, you know, as long as you have a, you know, a, a good you know, home and housing and if you could have a beautiful scenery and temperate climates like you get in Cleveland, Ohio, um, you could have, yeah, that was a joke, yeah, if you could get uh, all these, but if we could only have good schools, I mean, we need need good schools. We need them. And so we tax people. We even tax people who don't have children. And, and we make them pay to, to make sure that a whole community has good schools. And I haven't even touched on private education or vocational training or university education. We need this. It's part of a, 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 a lot of people's view of human rights or, or at least quality life. Ironically, the person in the United States that most of us would have thought of, of all of our countrymen, of all of our fellow countrymen, perhaps the wisest of all of our fellow citizens, at least that we all would know, might have been, or at least he would have certainly ranked in the top four or five, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it would be difficult to dispute Lincoln's wisdom, wouldn't it? And yet, do you know that Lincoln only spent 18 months of his entire life in formal education? Even when he was studying for the Illinois State Bar, he did not study at the University of Illinois Law School. He studied in one room that he rented with a, with a bed and a table, and he read Blackstone's commentaries on the law of England. This is how he prepared for the Illinois State Bar. He went to school only in the winter and only in the years of his 6th, 7th, 11th, 13th, and 15th birthdays. Just a very few months that he spent in formal education. 
Lincoln summed up his view on formal education, though, or at least on his view of, of the need for education, when he spoke the eulogy at Henry Clay's uh, funeral. Here's what Lincoln said. He spoke about Mr. Clay, who, who likewise did not have a, an early childhood education. He said, Mr. Clay's lack of an early formal education teaches one profitable lesson. It teaches that in this country, one can scarcely be so poor that if he will, he can acquire a sufficient education. We worry about these things in our world. We worry about textbooks and teachers and laptops and, and, and all the sorts of things that you need to be properly educated. And yet we live in a world where it seems that um, for all of our resources, education, or at least the educated populace, seems to be suffering. But I don't think it's from adequate resources. I think it's from apathy. We lack the desire to learn as a, as a culture and society. And so a real irony of our history is that he, as we stand on the 21st century, with all the resources around us, we perhaps have produced one of the most unlearned and ill-informed cultures in recent human history. For all of our learning resources, we have not become wise. And it's actually worse than that. As problematic as all of that is up to this point, it's actually worse. Because in a lot of our educational systems, we have replaced what is the, the main ingredient for true wisdom with a lie. The main ingredient for true wisdom is not that with human ability, with study in science and mathematics and literature, that we can become wise. We cannot. We lack an ingredient if we only have those those liberal uh, uh, um, values, are, and I don't mean that in, the, in, a, in a conservative liberal alignment, but in, those, in that liberal arts sort of a view. If we only have those few items, science, mathematics, literature, so on, we lack the most important ingredient. What was it that made Lincoln so wise in his days? Was it that he had such great natural ability? I'm sure he had. But it wasn't that, was it? It was his main textbook. Do you know what Lincoln's main textbook, the book that he read more than any other, do you know what book that might have been? I'm just wanting you to take a guess. Just one guess at what book that might have been. That's right, he read the Bible over and over and over again. And it was the main textbook for other people, people that perhaps you've heard, people like Isaac Newton and George Washington, people like um, Francis Bacon and Thomas Aquinas. It's not that we don't need the other disciplines of study. We certainly do need a wide range of disciplines, but the most important book, the most important source of study was this book, the Word of God. And so while we need schools and teachers and books and universities and thank God for all of those, alone they're not enough. Thank God for the internet. Where would we be, where would we be without Wikipedia or Google? I mean, goodness, all the information comes from Google, doesn't it? But it's not enough. We need more. In today's gospel lesson, Jesus takes his friends on a little excursion. They go to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, the city of Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Do you know this is about as far as Jesus ever traveled from his home? He travels north to, uh, to Caesarea Philippi. It's a pagan city. It's inhabited mostly by Gentiles. Very few Jews are in the area. And, uh, and so Jesus was in a place where he pretty much could be left alone. Him and his friends wouldn't be bothered by, um, by the, uh, the Jews who were, who were giving him fits at this time in, in his ministry. And so he goes to this place. 
But what was most important about Caesarea Philippi is that there was located a shrine to the Greek god Pan. Pan was the god of desolate places. He was the god of, of panic and nature. Uh, the word panic itself comes from, from the Greek god Pan. And Jesus goes to this place. There's also this natural spring that kind of comes out of this huge limestone rock where they worship Pan and threw sacrifices into a cave in the middle of it. Hundreds and thousands of people would come there all the time to worship this god Pan. And Jesus goes there. Imagine this as his backdrop with his closest friends, and he asks them a question. Who do people say that I am? Oh, You know the answers, don't you? Uh, some say that you're... Uh, Elijah and others, John the Baptist, till some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All interesting answers. And all thoroughly Jewish. No one says the son of Pan. No one says that you might be the son of Caesar. No one says that you might be some other pagan or Gentile god. You see, in the Gentile world, Jesus wasn't even on the radar. He wasn't even known. He was so obscure as to not even cause a stir. Who do people say that I am? Well, maybe some kind of, some kind of religious figure in Judaism. But that's about it. And then he turns the tables. All right, but who do you say that I am? Who do you, my friends, who do you think that I am? And then you get um, probably some silence until Simon Peter. You remember Simon Peter, don't you? St. Peter? Do you know that St. Peter was a fisherman? And he was uneducated. Two letters in the Bible bear St. Peter's name, the first and second epistle of Peter, clearly written by two different people because they're written in different styles of Greek literature. Peter dictated them. Certainly they're from his own thought life, but probably not written by him. He's the one who speaks up. And here's what he says. You are Jesus. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And no one in Jesus' world would have spoke like that. To say that one was the Messiah was not to say that he was divine. You say, well, well, we know, we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, the Son is divine. But not in Jesus' world. Nobody thought of the Messiah in those terms. They thought of him as an anointed man, but not as God incarnate. And yet that's what Peter says. How did he know that? How did Peter know that Jesus was, in fact, God incarnate? The answer is right there in the text. You heard it, didn't you? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you by who? My Father who is in heaven. Peter's wisdom is not wisdom that came from a classroom. It's knowledge that did not come from studying math and science and literature. It's knowledge that came from a different source. It's called grace. Peter had lived in the presence of Christ. He had heard his word and brought it into his life. He had seen the miracles that Jesus had wrought. And from this, he had a new revelation that Jesus was not just a regular man, that he was, in fact, God in flesh and blood. He had experienced the power of Christ and something changed. He knew something and he didn't actually know how he knew it. Okay, so what are you saying? Tell me. Tell me, preacher, are you saying that we should just like have a premium on ignorance? That we should all um, not worry about schooling? You know that's not the case, don't you? I mean, goodness gracious, if anybody has spent time in, in schooling, it's been me. I, I, I know that what it's, how important it is. But I think this. 
I think that we should cherish wisdom above knowledge. Knowledge makes us proud, but wisdom keeps us humble. Wisdom is the recognition that, that what we really need to know comes from God. We live in a world where everyone is an expert. I mean, turn on your television set sometime, right? I mean, go from one news channel to another and hear two completely different experts so certain that what they're saying is right, whether it's politics or the economy or science or art or whatever. But listen to Isaiah's prophecy this morning. Listen to what Isaiah says. Listen to me. This is God speaking. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Verse 2, 51, 2. Look to Abraham. Verse 4. Give attention to me. Lift up your eyes, verse 6. Listen to me, verse 7. God is saying something to us this morning, isn't he? There are voices all around who proclaim to have knowledge, but God wants us to listen to him. Listen, we live in a world that is sometimes antagonistic to Christianity, sometimes. And some people worry about that. I'm worried about a far deeper problem than antagonism. We live in a world that is apathetic to Christianity. It doesn't matter. Jesus is either some crazy myth that some superstitious people believe on the one hand, or he's a good teacher who taught nice things, nice people to be nice. I often say that sometimes the slogan of the church, isn't it nice that we can be nice to the nice? You know, this is, Jesus is not that person. He is, as C.S. Lewis said, one of three people. He is either a lunatic, he is a liar, or he is the Lord. And you have to choose. There is no avoiding this decision. St. Paul's words to us this morning as well. Do not be conformed to this world. But what? But be transformed. How? How are we to be transformed? Metamorphosed is the word that St. Paul uses. How are we to be transformed? By the renewing of our minds. This morning uh, we're approaching a new academic year. Schools are ready to start. It has Abby and I singing the Yuletide classic. It's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> and it's not just the boys' home either, right? It's all these other homes as well. All these K through 12 students getting their scissors and glue, their book covers, all those sorts of things. University students getting backpacks and trying to store as much money from their parents as they can. Um, Some of you can't remember the last time you were in a classroom. It's been a long time. I assure you, you've been learning, even if you haven't been in a classroom. But here's the questions. Are our minds being shaped by the philosophies of this world? Or are they being enlightened by the spirit of the living God? Because if it is the former, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But if it is the latter then we are of all people truly blessed. Amen.